Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, guys. Um, if you haven't figured it out yet, uh, my name is Mike. I'm the campus pastor here for our Union County campus. Uh, I just wanted to start by saying I am so honored to get to preach to you guys. Um, I love the book of Colossians. I love the Bible. I love this like section of scripture that we find ourselves in today. And it really is, it's an honor to get to do this. So thank you, guys. And I get to do it on my birthday. Like, what a gift. So... I don't, I really can't think of a better way to celebrate my birthday than to preach, eat a steak, take a nap, and then go watch the Super Bowl. Like, it doesn't get better than that. And in some ways, for whatever reason, I feel like if Christian McCaffrey wins the Super Bowl, then, like, the Panthers have basically won the Super Bowl. So I'm just going to kind of hold my hat on that for a while. But if you are new with us, um, we've been working our way, like I said, through the book of Colossians. Guys, it has been a powerful and transformational season for myself. Um, It's been a powerful and transformational season, I think, for our church and Today, we come across what feels like some of the most profound ideas in the whole book. So we're picking up like right in the middle of chapter three and leading up to this point in the book, Paul, the author of the book, he's been giving us this like powerful declaration of who Christ is. He is before all things. He is the creator. He is the savior. And then he's warned us about pride and judgment. We learned about sacrificial joy. And last week we came across this concept of taking off our old self and putting on our new self. And part of this new self is a new citizenship. It's belonging to a new people. And this citizenship, it is primary and it is central to our identity as a people, as one that are in Christ. And today, where we find ourselves is, what does this new citizenship look like? So in other words, like collectively, as a group of people who have all put on their new self, like, what does that look like? What does life look like for these people? Uh, and it's crucial, guys, for us to understand and to implement this as a believer, but especially as a new campus. Like, we need to know how to walk alongside each other in a way that God has designed us to walk alongside each other. Um, honestly, I think you'll find some of these ideas very challenging. I've been challenged just this week by what Christ calls us into. I've been confronted with my own pride. I've been confronted with how dismissive I can be in my home. And I think that one of the tragic ways that we as a church fail in this new self, and one of the things that Paul is primarily addressing here is how do we treat each other? As the followers of Christ, how do we treat each other? Paul, he gives us really clear insight into this. And what I hope to convince you of during this time, which is the main point of this sermon, is how we live, how you live, among others, it should reflect Christ's heart. And to give you a little preview of where we're going and how we're going to get there, there are three points. 
We're talking about who you are in Christ. Paul gives us this, these traits, these defining characteristics of followers of Christ. And then we're going to talk about what sustains you. So as we try to walk this out together, like how do we continue to remind ourselves and remain aware of our new identity as someone that follows Christ, as this new self? And then it shifts a little bit to get really practical. Paul talks about what life looks like. We get some insight into what this new self looks like in marriage, what it looks like in parenting, what it looks like to being parented in work and all sorts of different types of relationships. So before we continue to dive in, I'm going to pray. If you guys want to flip over to Colossians chapter three, we're actually going to start in verse 12. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the fact that we can, we can put on our new self and this new self, um, it's you. We have been covered by you, by your righteousness, by your perfection. So whenever that old self shows up, we can trust that you have covered us. Lord, we praise you for that. And as we learn about what it means to follow you, what it means to be a community of people that follows you, Lord, would your spirit be with us? Would you give us endurance? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us hope? Lord, we need you. Thank you for your word. In your name we pray, amen. So like I said, we start with who you are in Christ. Paul gives us this really beautiful reminder of our identity. How are we defined? Verse 12 says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. We are God's chosen ones. We are holy and we are dearly loved. To those of us who are in Christ, he first says that we are chosen in some way that none of us like fully understand, God has ordained for you to be in this room today. The God that created the universe, he created you and he gives you a purpose. He gives your life a purpose, your sin purpose, the joys, the pains of your life. He has given it all a purpose. You have been chosen. And then he says that you are holy. And all that really means is that we're set apart. Like our lives should look distinctly remarkably different than the world around us. If we belong to a family of God, how we treat each other, which is where Paul's going to sort of zoom in, it should be remarkably different than how the rest of the world treats each other. And if it doesn't, guys, and oftentimes I think it does, but we need to do some serious self-examination. And then most impactfully on me, he says that you have been dearly loved. This cannot be overemphasized. Part of how you are defined as a person who follows Jesus is that you are dearly loved. This is the gospel, right? Like we talk about keeping it at the center. Like this is the love that motivated God to send Jesus to the cross. This is the, lo this is the love that allowed Jesus to consider the cross in front of him as joy. Remember, we learned about this a few weeks ago, that sacrificial joy, it comes when you give up something that you love for something that you love more. So the sacrifice comes from giving up something you love, and the joy comes from receiving something you love more. Like, I am sure that Jesus loved being in heaven, on his throne, in perfect unity with the Trinity, whatever that looked like. I'm sure it was a great time, but because he loves us, he left that. And he went to the cross and he was able to look at it and consider it joy. If we are going to live as a community 
that, that reflects God to the world around us, the way God has designed us, this identity of being chosen, of being holy and being loved, it must be foundational. And then based on that identity, he continues in the rest of that verse to say, so put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's really important to recognize that Paul doesn't say, strive really hard to be all of these things. Or like, if you're going to be a Christian, you got to be all of these things. He uses that phrase, put on. This is a phrase that Paul uses common in his letters. And when you see it, what you should hear is covering yourself with Christ. See, Christ, he is all of these attributes fully realized. And if we want to live with them and walk them out, we must cover ourselves with Christ. We must be with him. We must be surrounded by him. We must abide with Christ so much that as we walk these attributes out, people don't see us. They don't see that old, broken version of us. They see Christ covering us. That is how we reflect Christ to the world is because we have put him on and it's also really important to realize that these attributes that Paul lists here, they only express themselves in relationship with others, right? Like you can't be compassionate towards someone with no one to be compassionate towards. You can't be, uh, show kindness while you're isolated alone. You can't be humble and patient whenever we're locked in our room playing video games. Like we've got to be with people. Part of your identity in Christ is walked out among community, with others. And a measure of how we're doing and living in Christ's design is being in community and how we treat others with that. Which brings me to this next section of scripture. So Paul, he's right in the middle of this sentence of, a, of kind of listing these traits of what the followers of Jesus, what people have put on Christ look like. And he kind of pauses and gives this command. And I want to read it to you guys. It says, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. I want to read that again, guys. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you also are to forgive. This is going to be a huge part of what we talk about today. That Something that is key to Christian community, to people, a group of people who have put on this new self, is that we have to understand that we have been forgiven. Your sins have been covered by, the, by Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. Through Jesus, every sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit, it has been paid for by the one that we have sinned against. Christ forgave you when he knew that you were going to keep sinning. And yet, when we turn to him, he says, you are dearly loved. And this idea, guys, it is not at all unique to the book of Colossians. Jesus, he's driving this point home relentlessly into the hearts of his followers. How we forgive others should be a marker, a defining characteristic of God's people. Just a few examples, and guys, if you look for it, you'll see it everywhere. But you see it in Matthew 6, 12. This is the Lord's Prayer. Like Me and my daughters, we say this every night before we go to bed. But for some reason, like the truth of it can just sort of wash over you unless you really pay attention to it. But it says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Just a few verses later in Matthew 6, 14, Jesus says again with a little bit more uh, directness, he says, for if you give other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. He says something very similar all throughout the gospels. In Luke 6, 
Matthew 18, Matthew 6 again, a few more times, even says it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 7, Jesus is abundantly clear that those who experience forgiveness, the forgiveness of the gospel, they forgive others. And just to be clear, guys, this does not mean that you are somehow earning forgiveness by forgiving other people. That would be contradictory to the gospel. But I think what Paul is saying here, what Jesus is reiterating is that when you know how truly forgiven you are, when you know how much grace has been given to you, you have no choice but to forgive others. That you have to. And if you don't, then you just don't understand how much you have been forgiven. Jesus, he even has a whole parable explaining this idea called the parable of the unforgiving debtor. Please go read it. And what this does, guys, is it forces us to search our hearts for grudges, for built up resentments, for bitterness, really any space where we are lacking grace with other believers. And as we identify those emotions, we have to learn how to extend forgiveness. God has forgiven you and you should forgive others. Because this made me think of a story from a book called The Hiding Place. Some of you may be familiar with this book, even familiar with this story, but what The Hiding Place is, is a memoir of Corrie Ten Boom. Um, she was a Dutch watchmaker during World War II, and she was a Christian, but she was sent to a concentration camp called Ravensbrück because he and or her family, they were trying to help uh, Jews escape Nazi Germany. And so they built a, a room in their house called the hiding place. Um, so her and her family were sent to a concentration camp. She survived the war and was released in 1947. And she found herself going back into Germany to speak about forgiveness. And while she's speaking, she recognizes a man that is walking up to her as a guard from her imprisonment. And when she sees him, she has this really powerful moment. She has a flashback to her imprisonment. And I just want to read some of the things that she described. She says, it came back with a rush, a huge room with harsh overhead lights. There's a pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the room. She describes re-feeling the shame of having to walk past this man naked. She then remembers seeing her sister's frail form walking ahead of her. She says, I can remember seeing her ribs sharp beneath her parchment thin skin as she was starving. This man approaches her and he says, I was a, I was a guard at the concentration camp that you were at. But since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for all the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Ma'am, he reaches out his hand. Will you forgive me? And listen to her internal dialogue in that moment. She says, I stood there. I, whose sins had to be forgiven every day, could not find myself to forgive. Betsy, my sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow and terrible death? It could not have been seconds that he stood there, his hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I've ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. She recalls Matthew 6, 14 in her mind and says, the message that God forgives, it has a command that we forgive those who have injured us. So I stood there with coldness clutching my heart, 
But forgiveness is not something I can supply. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the Holy Spirit and that spirit can function regardless of the temperature of her heart. So in her pain, Corey prayed to Jesus. He said, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you must supply the forgiveness. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. And listen to what she says she experienced in that moment. She said, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Church, this is the type of forgiveness that Christ is calling his people into. It's an impossible forgiveness, a forgiveness that comes from understanding the depths that Christ has come to forgive us and then trusting the Holy Spirit to supply that freedom that comes from from forgiving others, from being able to experience the love of God. And guys, if we have put on Christ, if we have covered ourselves with Christ, this type of forgiveness is possible. And if we are going to live among others in a way that reflects Christ's heart, this type of forgiveness, it must saturate our hearts. I know, guys, how difficult this can be. So sort of a pastoral aside, I want to talk about, like, what does it mean to forgive someone? Because you may be thinking, well, in my situation, forgiveness doesn't seem uh, likely or possible. Uh, It doesn't seem uh, even helpful. But I think if I walk through exactly what it is, it could be helpful. And I'll start by kind of talking about what forgiveness is and then what it's not. Um, Starting with what it's not. The first thing that forgiveness is not is that it is not the same thing as reconciliation, right? Reconciliation requires that both sides are moving towards each other. Even with Christ, this is the case, right? Like Christ has done everything necessary to forgive you. But reconciliation with him, it only happens when you have faith and confess him as Lord of your life. So in cases, guys, where you have been abused, taken advantage of, neglected in any way, attacked, cheated on, reconciliation might not be in your control. But forgiveness through the help of the Holy Spirit, it is very much so possible. Forgiveness is also not simply overlooking things. It does not mean that you just simply sit back and take things on the chin in an effort to be more like Christ. Christ wants you to be safe and cared for. So abuse, manipulation, neglect, none of those are things that God wants for his children. So if you find yourself stuck in this situation, please get help. Our deacons will have both male and female people all around the, sta- uh, the service afterwards. Come talk to one of us. Like, we will do absolutely everything we possibly can to care for you. And lastly, for things that what forgiveness is not, and I want to say this with as much care and tact as I possibly can, because I can't imagine how difficult this idea can be to hear in certain situations. But forgiveness is not an option. It's a command. And think, guys, if we can learn to trust the Lord to supply that forgiveness in every grievance, especially in the most terrible of situations, we can experience what what Corey had experienced when she forgave the prison guard. We can experience the love of God like we never have before. And the reason we get to experience the love of God like that is because we get a tiny, a small little glimpse of what Christ has given us, an undeserved forgiveness. 
So now that we can understand what forgiveness is not, we have to talk about what it is. And there's a lot of different definitions for this. I tried to sort of pick through and find the most useful one. But forgiveness is this process of seeking the Lord to ask him, to help him remove the attitude in our hearts that desires vengeance for the person who has wronged us. We must pray to God to release bitterness, to release resentment, hatred, vindictiveness in our hearts, because what we have to be able to do is treat the person that has wronged us with love and kindness and gentleness, This does not necessarily mean, like I said, that reconciliation has happened, but our hearts should be free from bitterness and they should be full of of love, of gratitude. And like I said, I cannot imagine how difficult that could be in certain situations. Um, So if you're struggling with that, like get some help. Like I said, get in a community group, come talk to us. We will walk through that with you. And when we do this, guys, we can live among others in a way that reflects Christ's heart. And if you're like me, if all of this sounds like really hard to keep together, like how in the world do I manage all of this? Paul gives us this really helpful exhortation, which is my second point here. Like what sustains you? So we'll pick up in verse 14. He says, above all, put on love. There's that phrase, put on again, which is the perfect bond of unity. We must remember that we are loved And then that love that we have experienced, it must cover us. It is the glue that provides unity. It is the same love that, like we talked about earlier, that provides the vertical reconciliation between us and God. It's the same love that provides horizontal reconciliation between each other. If you guys remember last week's sermon, it had ended with Paul saying, hey, you're no longer Jew or Gentile. You're no longer barbarian or Scythian, circumcised, uncircumcised. Like those divisions no longer exist, but Christ is all and in all. When we have the love of God flowing through us into others, it leads to unity. That's partially like why one of our core values is that pursuing multicultural unity uh, is one of our values is because to love God, that love of God that's fully realized in the gospel, it brings and binds believers together. And if we are going to live among each other in a way that reflects Christ's heart, we must be a love-bonded people. So let's continue the rest of that verse. It says, and let the peace of Christ to which you are also called in one body rule your hearts. Within the context of this new citizenship, the idea, we have to let the idea that we've been reconciled to God completely govern how we find peace with each other. Christ, this is sort of a complicated idea, but if you'll stick with me, Christ has brought us into his family. So we belong to the body of Christ, which is the church. And this has happened to every believer, right? So a lack of peace with another believer, it's a lack of peace with another part of the body of Christ. Christ has brought us together, made us one, made us one body. And if the peace of Christ is going to rule our hearts, we cannot see each other primarily as individuals. If we're going to live among each other in a way that reflects Christ, we must see each other primarily as members of the same body. And the rest of verse 15 says this powerful and short little sentence. He says, and be thankful This is something we talked about a few weeks ago, but gratitude is one of the most powerful tools for sustaining a Christ-like community. When we are grateful, we cannot be prideful. 
When you're grateful, you are humble. Followers of Christ have to be grateful and humble people. If we want to be a people that lives in a way that reflects Christ's heart, we've got to be a people of gratitude. And then he says in verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. For me, this feels like some fresh air and a lot of like really heavy convicting truths. But Paul gives us a lot of practical ways to center ourselves in this new identity. He says, consume the word. Let it teach you. Let it shape you. Celebrate together. Tell the Lord of all the gratitude you have for him. Remind him and our people around you of what he's done. Like this is vital to the health of our Christian community of being able to sustain this new self. It's a gift from the Lord for us to gather, to learn, to worship, and sing together. And guys, all of this, the love of Christ, the peace of Christ, gratitude, the word of God, worshiping, like it's our only hope in being able to live among others in a way that reflects Christ's heart. Which walks me to my third point, guys. This is what life looks like. Paul shifts a little bit and gets really practical with this. We'll pick up in verse 17. It says, whatever you do, In word or in deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, don't exasperate your children so that they do not become discouraged. So what does your new life look as this new self walking in this new citizenship? To put simply, you do everything in the name of Jesus. Paul gives us some really specific examples that were really relevant to the Colossian church. But this applies to all of us, whether you're single, dating, a widower, uh, a widow, like whatever it is, empty nester, like this all applies to us. We are to recognize our identity as someone that is in Christ, and we must live in a way that reflects Christ to the world. And I'll admit, guys, as far as husbands and wives, there's not enough time to do all of these verses full justice. Um, So I'm going to summarize them the best I can. Uh, And then I'm going to refer you to our Ephesians series. We went through this a little bit deeper detail. Then feel free to go online and check those sermons out if any of this feels confusing or unclear, but I'll do my best to summarize them here. So wives submitting to their husbands, this does not mean in any way that you are oppressed by them. But just like we've been saying with every other thing, marriage is meant to reflect Christ and the church. We're supposed to reflect Christ to the world. So submitting to your husbands is to embrace the leadership that God has ordained in him. This does not mean at all that you do not have a voice. But what it does mean is that you are to trust the Lord to work through your husband. And the reason that you should be able to trust him in this new identity is that your husband should be loving you the way Christ loves the church. This means your husband should be pursuing you with a love that transcends anything a Hallmark movie can capture. Husbands, you should be dying to yourself the way Christ has died for his church. You should be putting the needs of your family above your own. Guys, my voice trembles as I try to preach that sentence because I'm so aware of all the ways that I fail at it. But in a marriage that reflects Christ's heart, this is the type of love that a wife is called to submit to. Not an overbearing husband, a bitter husband, one who does what he wants 
and then retreats when things get hard. Marriage reflects Christ's heart when both the husband and the wife, they're both submitting to God's design for marriage. And if you're thinking like, hey, I'm married, mine looks absolutely nothing like this. Like reach out, get some help, get in a community group, fight for a marriage that reflects the gospel. It is worth it. And children, you think you guys are off the hook? Paul says you should obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. Obedience to your parents, guys, it's the training ground where you can learn to obey someone who loves you, wants what's best for you, even when it doesn't make sense. And as you begin to make your faith your own, obeying the Lord is a discipline that you're familiar with. Kids, you can be reflecting Christ with how you obey your parents. I'm gonna put that verse on my wall and see if Cala pays attention to it, but (laughs) not yet. But then he doubles down on dads. He says, hey, don't irritate your kids. Your relationship should be one that is encouraging and fruitful. You are to disciple them. Guys, like what a tragedy it would be if we, if our kids, they grow up and they think, I always felt like dad was disappointed in me. Dads, you need to fight against the temptation to exasperate our kids. You're to encourage and empower them to follow Christ. In loving your kids in this way, you're able to reflect Christ to the community around you. And lastly, Paul gives us the description of slaves and masters. Before I kind of unpack this, it's really important to understand the context. The slaves that Paul are referring to here are not at all the same thing as pre-Civil War America. The slaves that Paul is referring to, they were not property. They were not race-based. What they mostly were were people working to forgive a debt. And then every seven years, they were able to have this debt forgiven. So it really was more of like a social safety net than it was anything oppressive. But, and, there, and I'm not saying that like this is a good thing, that this type of slavery was a good thing, and neither is Paul, but he's speaking to it in the life of the Colossian church. I think a helpful way for us to read these verses and how to understand and apply it to our culture is to think about any situation where there's people who have power and influence over another person that has power or influence. I think sometimes boss and employee can be a similar situation, but really any time where there's this power influence dynamic at play. So let's hear what Paul says about these types of relationships. He says, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever he has done wrong. And there is no favoritism. And masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you too know that you have a master in heaven. I think what Paul wants us to see here, what God wants us to see, is that we should redefine our work. You're not working for the person who has power and influence over you. You are working for the Lord. So have integrity, like work hard, have an eternal perspective with your work. The Lord sees you, your character, your work ethic, it pleases him. And to those of you who have power and influence over someone else, you've got to remember that you are not the actual master, but you are to submit to your Lord in heaven. 
How you treat those who are underneath your power and influence is not based on your earthly position over them. It's based on your position as a follower of Christ. So if you run a company or you hold a position of leadership of a company, your earthly position, it may allow you, your earthly position as master, right? It may allow you or even encourage you to squeeze productivity out of people and manipulate them for profits. But your position as a follower of Christ, it commands that you seek justice and you act fairly. How you live among others, it should reflect Christ's heart. Guys, I will admit, there are so many things to reflect on in these verses. We are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. We have put on Christ. We are unified by Christ's love. The peace of Christ, it rules our hearts. We are grateful. We love the word of God. We worship together. And we should do everything, everything in the name of Christ Jesus Jesus. 